Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Julianne Jakes, who is a barrister specialising in taxation law. She has particular expertise in disputes involving complex commercial transactions and was counsel for the Commissioner in the Bywater Investments matter in the High Court concerning corporate residency. Prior to coming to the bar, Julianne spent 10 years in private practice with a major law firm and a major accounting firm. She is a chartered tax advisor with the Tax Institute and a chartered accountant, and her doctoral thesis at the University of Melbourne was on the taxation of corporates. Julianne is a member of the Tax Practitioners Board and the Board of Taxation, currently acting chair. Julianne was also a senior tax advisor to the assistant treasurer, Rod Kemp, from 2000 to 2002, and is a member of the Independent Parliamentary Expenses Authority, which comprises five members who monitor the travel allowances and expenses of federal parliamentarians and their staff. Julianne, welcome to TaxYak. Hello, Robin. Lovely to be here. You monitor the travel expenses of politicians. What a job. That's correct. We do have a secretariat who assists with that task. It would be quite quite a large task for five of us to do. Absolutely. Mm. You must see some interesting things with that. Uh, in many of the things I do, I see many interesting things. Look, I wanted to start with a very basic question. Why do you love tax? You have a huge repertoire, background and experience. You've been in the game a long time. You are um, very well regarded and, and well known across the tax profession. Why do you love tax so much? Um, there might be an assumption in there that may or may not be correct about me loving tax. But what I would say is that um, it would be correct to say that I love working in tax. And the reason I love working in tax is that um, it's challenging, that every job is different. And tax law brings together all areas of law. It, it brings in administrative law, which is a very important component of tax. Uh, constitutional issues arise. Contract law is often in tax issues that arise. So being a tax lawyer doesn't mean focusing only on tax. It means having an understanding of quite a number of different areas of law. And property law and estate law, family law. It's difficult to find an area that's, that, that doesn't come into the tax field. And, and the other reason, perhaps the most important one of why I like working in tax, is that it affects the economy and the, the economy affects us all. Tax actually affects us all and... Um, because of that, decisions that can be made in tax, court cases that are made in tax, policy that's made in tax, all of these things are affecting everyone in Australia, um, far more than many of us realise. Uh, I made some recent remarks in an article where the tax system permeates everything we do. Mm. And in all the years I've been training and the cases I've looked at, there are stories about all sorts of businesses and all sorts of individuals and you get to see it all. You do. That's very, very true. And what I've found in my career, which goes for more years now than I would like to confess to, um, is that I've seen the small the small taxpayers who are struggling with issues which are important to them, but perhaps in the whole scheme of things, the dollars are not huge, right up to the massive, massive cases where the tax dollars are over a billion dollars. The big multinationals. Absolutely. Um, it permeates everything. You're quite right. If you look at the little guy versus the multinational... The tax issues are clearly different issues. They're fighting over different provisions in the Act and different interpretations. But are there any themes running through the litigation of either end of that spectrum? 
To a certain extent, they're different. Um, 8-1 affects everyone, so does 6-5. So quite often the issues, the fundamentals can be the same. Um, When we talk about um, whether provisions are different, things which are the same for them, what I would reflect upon most of all is in my career as a barrister, running a tax case in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is um, to a certain extent not that different to running one in the federal court and indeed when we're talking about just focusing on the legal issues, running a case in the High Court. It's still important to convey to the judge or the judges as the case may be or the tribunal member what the facts are, what the relevant facts are, and then what the law is that is going to be the basis of the decision. Um, And the methodology is the same. So I think whether it's the um, tax issues that involve a lot of money or tax issues that involve less money, the same analysis is required and often the same methodology of approaching the problem is required. Um, The only difference perhaps is that where the dollars are a lot bigger, there is therefore the money to spend on uh, making sure that every uh, T is crossed and every I is dotted. Um, I have a great deal of respect for the practitioners who work in the small and medium business area who have to reach decisions and provide advice um, much, much quicker um, and with far more limited resources. And also once you get to the the High Court and we're talking bigger dollars and and more lawyers involved. Um, we've obviously got a number of barristers lined up potentially rather than just a, um, an advocate or a, a single barrister representing them at the lower level courts. Indeed, mm. indeed. In fact, um, I, was, um, I was in the High Court last week and there were four barristers on one side and, and three on the other. And then how many on the bench? Uh, there were five on the bench. That's uh, a lot of lawyers in one room. It's a lot of lawyers in one room. But as I say, the methodology is really not that much different. What I would say is this, if you walk into any tribunal or courtroom, if you want to know what is the um, height in the hierarchy, um, one way, apart from looking at the number of counsel, is to look at the height of the ceiling. Um, the ceiling in the tribunal is a normal room height. In the federal court, it's it's probably about twice that, and in the high court, it's difficult to see the ceiling. <laughs> okay. That gives a good benchmark. So, look, what I'd like to discuss over the um, course of this episode is I want to focus firstly on your board of tax role, but I also want to drill into your experience as a litigator, and then I want to look at uh, what all this means for practitioners, for the accountants who don't get to see the inside of a courtroom, how can they help their clients or how can they prepare for litigation in the event that it does arise? So perhaps if we start off with um, your board of tax role. Now, just some observations of mine before I um, put some questions to you. The law is getting clunky and heavy, and if we could start again with a brand new system, I don't think it would look the way it currently does, if we had the opportunity for a clean slate. So we've got a system where things have been bolted on over the years. We've had successive governments over many decades bring in their policies. Things get amended and altered. So have we got outdated legislation and have we got complex legislation, which makes it incredibly challenging for practitioners to comply with? And I'm thinking, for example, the FBT Act. Uh, We've got measures that are dealing with briefcases, and I don't know how many people walk around town now with the old leather briefcase, Uh, not to uh, criticise anyone who does use one, but these days it's the modern satchel, and would a satchel qualify as a briefcase? 
Um, we've got very complex provisions for definitions of small business. So um, just your initial thoughts on where the law looks at the moment and are we achieving anything out of all these regular amendments? Look, if we were starting with a clean slate um, with tax law, it probably wouldn't be different to write, starting with a, a clean slate in, air, in any area of law. Um, we could rewrite everything to work perfectly with the society and the system that we have at the moment. But unfortunately, we can never do that with tax or with indeed any area of law. We have to work with what we've got. Um, and it will keep evolving. It keeps evolving. And I think that's the point. And, and often the complexity comes about because it has been evolving all the time to deal with different situations. Uh, now, um, People have said to me, and, and, and I think it's probably true, that in Australia we do have um, a very evolved form of taxation in the sense of it um, having perhaps a higher level of complexity that perhaps other comparable jurisdictions don't have. We could talk for days on what might be the reason for that, but we have what we have. Uh, so far as moving forward, um, there certainly is, I think, always a will to of governments and of practitioners to try to uh, improve what we have and make it reflective of the system. The system moves very quickly. Financial arrangements, as we know, move very quickly. Um, and sometimes the tax law does take a little while to catch up with, with the way um, business and the financial sector is working. Uh, you raised um, fringe benefits tax issues. Um, and certainly the Board of Tax uh, at the moment uh, is undertaking and has undertaken a review to uh, try to investigate whether there are any measures that can be implemented to decrease compliance costs with fringe benefits tax, um, not in order to rewrite the FBT law, but see if there are things that can be tweaked which are sensible changes. So there is work um, constantly being done, um, I think, by the ATO, Board of Tax, Treasury, um, and other organisations that the government looks at in relation to FBT. But we're still having consistencies. For example, the recent position by the Commissioner confirming that whilst we have Ubers treated like taxis for GST purposes following the Uber decision um, a couple of years ago, but we've now got a confirmed position from the ATO that an Uber is not a taxi for FBT purposes. So we've got different definitions in different bits of legislation that lead to different practical outcomes which makes it not only more difficult to comply with, but potentially is producing these anomalies which shouldn't arise. So it's difficult because ATO can only apply the law as it exists. It's really up to the government and Treasury to rewrite things. Um, they've got their own agenda and, and demands and, and political challenges. Um, and we're not necessarily going to get things improved overnight when it's um, a fairly minor amendment. But it, for those who are affected by it, it can be quite significant. I don't think I can add any more to what you've just said, Robin. You've, you've identified the tensions and the pressures and, and how there are lots of different um, fingers in this pie, um, which I think is appropriate. Everybody has a role to play. Uh, but it does sometimes create the sorts of issues that you're talking about. It's important we all recognise them and then we all try to see what, what's the best we can do to deal with them. Now, another area that is generating certainly a lot of discussion in our sessions and across the profession, the individual tax residency rules. So a couple of things going on at the moment. We are still waiting for the 13th September special leave hearing in the High Court where the High Court will determine whether they will grant special leave to the Commissioner in the Glen Harding case. And this is, of course, all about the, the fellow who was living in Bahrain, working in Saudi Arabia, and whether or not he was a resident 
in the relevant income year, despite his uh, family living in Australia and him being based overseas. So we're all keenly awaiting the outcome of that special leave application and, and whether or not it does proceed to the High Court as a full hearing. Separately, the Board of Tax has been looking at these rules. Uh, they've issued uh, discussion papers and I understand that the final report has now gone to the government. So I know that this has not been publicly released yet, but do you have any comments about the state of play of the residency rules and, and where we go to from here? Certainly, so far as the Board of Tax goes, the information that you have is correct, that the report's been provided to the government and there hasn't as yet been any indication of the release of that. There was an interesting point raised in the discussion paper released by the Board publicly, which was proposing a potential bright line test, where this would effectively replace all the current residency rules about domicile and place of abode, etc., yeah. with a test based on the number of days you're here. Now, we do have a 183-day rule, of course, but that's based on inward-bound people, not outward-bound. So this seems to appeal to a lot of people, but we're very, again, keen to see what the government does in response to the board's report and, and of course, whether we'll see legislative amendments down the track. Yes. The, so this is all, all important processes to go through. They are. Look, the board, like everyone, is always keen to see what the government makes of the board's reports. In terms of working with the board members, um, we don't get to see the inside of that either. So in terms of uh, being an advisor really to Treasury, and it's to support them and, and how they come up with policies, um, this was actually a self-initiated review. So this wasn't one where the government asked the board to consider it. This was something where the board felt there was a need for it to be looked at. And I found that really interesting. Well, the way the board works is actually we're an advisor to the government rather than to Treasury, uh, although we have a secretariat that's provided by Treasury and we obviously... Um, a lot of work um, which is done is done by the Secretariat but always under the direction of a board member. When there's a project that we're working on, one, two, three board members will be appointed as the working group to, to that project. Sometimes we also pull in uh, professionals. I want to ask um, you about that. So sometimes you'll engage with the profession? Yes, we will. In fact, mm. very often that's part of our job. Part of our job uh, is to, if you like, um, assist the government to understand the private sector's view of different sorts of things. So far as a self-initiated review goes, it is self-initiated, but what we can't do is... Uh, go off and, and use our resources or the resources that Treasury provides to us through the Secretariat to undertake a review of any topic that we want to. We always undertake uh, a review, um, it, or even where a review is self-initiated, it's, it's work that the government does want us to do. Uh, and certainly the government wanted to do uh, us to do this work in individual tax residency. And running parallel to the High Court appeal potentially too. It's interesting timing. It's all very interesting timing. I'm not sure that that was necessarily planned, but it is interesting. Um, and just to share with you, in one of my former lives when I was with Webb Martin, which was the former um, predecessor of the, the tax banter business, um, going back a few versions earlier, um, we were involved in the Board of Tax Review on the Small Business CGT concessions. So in 2006, the final report was delivered to the board. Um, I was involved in the development of that report um, and I resigned halfway through, so I wasn't around to see the final product delivered. But um, certainly the report that Webb Martin produced was instrumental in those changes that came through in 2006. So it, it was good to see that process where we're involved in looking at the processes and the research and where the provision's working and what wasn't working and then providing recommendations to the board, which ended up filtering through to the government and led to legislative change. Yes. So the processes do work. Look, they do work and change can happen. Um, not every change that is proposed gets up, even if it might be a sensible change 
from one perspective, there can be various reasons why it can't get up. Um, but there is a process for change. And on the board, we're uh, always uh, trying to consult with the private sector. Uh, we meet with the private sector quite regularly. We meet approximately once a month. And when we do meet ordinarily, although not always, but ordinarily it's followed by um, a session where we have quite a number of practitioners from uh, the particular location that we're meeting in and, and we have a discussion with them. So we do always try to consult and we're always looking for ideas uh, and, and um, helpful ideas and sensible ideas that we can consider. That's why we have on our website a sounding board uh, where people can put their ideas up. And one might think I put an idea up, but nobody looks at it. At each of our board meetings, we actually consider every idea that's been put up onto the sounding board. So if you do have an idea and you put it on the sounding board, you can be confident that we will look at it. And you this may is readily not, available through your website, so it's easy to find? Readily available. And you mm. may not get a response to what you put up on the sounding board for for some time, but that doesn't mean it's been dismissed. What that means is that we're looking at it or we've referred it to somebody else and are looking for the response. Uh, so it is actually a good way to, to put ideas. Now, I'm not saying that if you put up the idea of um, drop the income tax rate to nil, remove corporate taxation and increase GST to 30%, that you're going to have much of a response on the sounding board. That level of that level of change and fundamental change is not what the, the sounding board is about. But if you do see something that isn't working and is a sensible or even no-brainer change to make, then we want to hear about it. And we can do we can do something about it in the sense of highlighting it. And it's good to know and I encourage practitioners to look at the, the Board of Taxation website because there is some useful information there and, and interesting reviews that have been undertaken. Hmm. So if we can now change hats and remove you as a, a Board of Taxation board member and put you in, back into the role of the litigator, uh, what are some of the, uh, the experiences that you've seen that have raised your eyebrows? And you would have seen a lot. The ones that I can talk about publicly, although of course everything's always or nearly always public in a courtroom, um, except on the very rare occasions when the courtroom is closed. Um, some of the interesting ones that just a couple that stand out in my mind um, the interesting ones and the amusing ones normally come from comments made by judges not the taxpayers not the taxpayers uh, not necessarily the barristers although they may react to what the judge says but often judges who are highly intelligent people do come out with um interesting and sometimes amusing comments. Um, I, I recall one case I was involved in where the issue was the admissibility of evidence and the argument was being put that the evidence was not sufficiently probative to be admitted and the judge likened that evidence to uh, evidence in a criminal case involving a murder and he said that this evidence or like he likened the probative value of that evidence to the probative value of the bloody axe that killed the victim in those terms. That would have had a few drawers dropping in the courtroom. That did have a few drawers dropping in the courtroom. Another one that happened to me recently is that the judge quoted to me the trial of Queen Caroline. What's the trial uh, of Queen Caroline? Uh, Queen Caroline was married to George IV, who was the uncle of 
Queen Victoria and uh, it was not a very happy marriage and George IV was probably like one of his predecessors, hopeful of getting a male heir and wanted to um, remove himself from the marriage situation and to do that certain accusations were brought about the behaviour of Queen Caroline, but the trial was not successful. Um, so these things can happen um, in courtrooms um, in the middle of very serious things. Um, it doesn't mean people don't appreciate the seriousness of them, but they, they, can be, they can be interesting. But it's welcome like relief, because I imagine that most of the time there would be a lot of tedious processes and pouring through documents and a lot of hours spent where... If someone's watching as an observer, um, they may find it fairly dry, but other times I'm sure there's a, a few fireworks that go off occasionally. I would say observers would find 95% of what goes in a courtroom very dry. Um, the other 5% can actually be quite, quite engaging for an observer. What I would say, though, of that 95%, if you're actually involved in the trial, it's not as dry as you would think. And you talk about hours pouring over documents... There are few cases where hours pouring over documents is effective. There's a saying in um, litigation circles that most, ca most cases are decided on several documents and on no more than one folder of documents, and yet... But they wheel are... in the crates of, of lever-arch files. Yes, they do, and... Part of that is the need to make sure all of the evidence that is relevant is going to be on. But often there are, within those piles, certain significant glimmers of gold, and they are the ones that can turn a case. But you've got to know where those glimmers are. You've got to know where they are, and part of barristers or counsel's job, in fact a large part of our job, is to identify that. And not only identify the the golden pieces of the evidence, but also to identify the golden arguments. And that's really what we as litigators, as barristers, I think, bring to the table more than anything else. We bring the judgment of what is the argument that is going to win this case. Because judges don't like to have 20 arguments presented to them and then they have to disseminate what is the best argument. And sometimes in those circumstances, the best argument can be lost. Uh, the job of a barrister is to identify what is the argument that can turn this and can win this case. So really filter the information down to some key issues. Yes, mm -hmm. and then understand a very complex case sufficiently to make it seem like a simple case. And that's what the very best litigators are able to do. Take a very complex case and make it very, very simple. Uh, and the very, the very top senior counsel, and I've been fortunate to work with a number of them, are the ones who, whether they're appearing in court or whether they're giving advice in conference, at the end of it, one finds oneself saying to oneself, how could it be anything else? It was staring us in the face all the time. It is so simple. Of course, that is the answer. And then that needs to be clearly conveyed to the judge. And then, yes, where it is in a courtroom, that is, that is the way in which it's conveyed to the judge. When it's in a conference, that is the way it's conveyed to the client. 
How do you pick your cases? Because I'm sure you can't accept everything that is always put to you by instructing solicitors. Are the times when barristers refuse cases, either due to time commitments or some other conflict, or it's not of their interest, or they want to pursue another agenda? So I'm wondering what uh, makes a, a barrister decide which cases they will accept and which ones they reject. There's a rule in barrister land called the cab rank principle, which means that if somebody um, approaches us to accept a brief and it's an area that we're competent in and we have capacity to do it and they are prepared to pay our fees, then we take the brief. Uh, if it were not that, then there are some um, litigants um, in some areas of practice more than others who would potentially find it difficult to get a barrister. So the cab rank principle means I don't judge who this client is, I'll accept this client if I can do the work. Delays of litigation, do you get a sense that there are delays or has this improved over the years? And if there are delays, where do these tend to come from? I started at the bar quite some time ago. You won't name me here. That's okay. It was more than 10. <laughs> uh, and at that time, uh, litigation in the federal court, and I'll talk about the federal court because that's where the majority of my work is in the federal jurisdiction being, being tax, a little bit in the state jurisdiction, but mainly in the federal jurisdiction. Um, there were um, more delays in the federal court then than there are now. Um, certainly the federal court uh, has worked hard to uh, ensure that from the time that a case is filed to when judgment is handed down to ensure that that time is as small as possible. Uh, often delays can actually be caused by uh, the litigants themselves, the parties themselves. Uh, and deliberately so, is that tactics or is it just circumstance that causes those delays? It certainly shouldn't be tactics. Um, I um, would not be comfortable or happy if I saw something that was apparently tactics, but then nor would a judge. Um, the things that can often cause delays are gathering evidence, uh, particularly where the evidence has to come from offshore, or uh, witnesses have to be located. Uh, that That is, I think, the main reason for delays. Rarely now do delays occur because people just haven't done the work or haven't prepared submissions in time. Advocacy, if we talk about the way that arguments are put to the judges and the issues that you're uh, raising with them, is this more delivered through the uh, traditional oratory or the, the verbal dialogue of the, the barrister parading around the courtroom like they, they do in the, the movies? Or is this done through written submissions or is this done by a combination of the two? It's done by a combination of the two and it tends to wax and wane as to which one has precedence. Um, going back, my understanding is going back 30, 40 years, a lot of it was oral. Uh, then written submissions became prevalent and also, um, and in tax cases uh, this applies, a lot of the evidence in chief is now given by way of affidavit. Uh, so so it's, can you explain that in more detail for the practitioners who may not understand that fully? What that means is that rather than if you see it in, in the movies, a witness standing up and giving their 
evidence in chief, that is the evidence for their side, entirely orally, it will be uh, prepared by way of a written affidavit beforehand. So basically a statement? A statement or a witness statement, as it's called in the tribunal. Yep. And where it's an affidavit, it will be um, attested to, which is means either sworn or affirmed by the witness, and then filed with the court and provided to the other side in advance of the hearing. The other side will then have the opportunity to respond to that with evidence in response. So if someone provides an affidavit, could they still be called as a witness? Yes, absolutely. And they could be cross-examined on the statements they've made? Absolutely. Uh, and that happens quite commonly. But what it means is that a lot of the evidence in chief is prepared beforehand and a lot of the parties know what's coming, uh, which is, which is I think, quite sensible. Uh, but then there is the cross-examination where nobody quite knows what's coming. And Robin, you asked a little earlier about um, the difference between written submissions and oral submissions. We do rely on both now. We went through a phase where it was very, very written. Now we're back to written, oral, a nice mix. Oral submissions actually can be very, very helpful to running the case and to winning the case because it's not until you get into court that you actually begin to get an understanding of the way the judge is thinking. And that's when you can hone the submissions that you're making in oral submissions. So you tailor them? We tailor them, absolutely. And you can tell the way a judge is thinking by the questions that they ask, the questions that they ask of your side and the questions that they ask of the other side. And sometimes judges, even though we've been in preparation for a case for 12 months or more, can pick up points that other people hadn't thought of and we need to address them for the judge. And the other advantage of oral submissions is that we can, in oral submissions, bring out what we see to be the most important or the most killer of the points that we have and really focus on those and make sure the judge fully understands those. So it's a very interactive um, situation in a courtroom and often it is in the courtroom that the case is won or lost, not on the written material that goes beforehand. That's just by way of introduction. Uh, and then sometimes when one is a barrister, one does have that... Um, sensation and it doesn't happen all the time but it's really good when it happens when you're talking to a judge and you can see that you're changing the judge's mind and turning the way the judge is thinking. It's like and steering a big ship and you can see it actually starting to move direction. You can see it moving direction and you can even see a judge have an aha moment and often after they've had the aha moment very shortly thereafter they turn to the other side and say what do you have to say to that? And then they sometimes even enunciate your argument in different words, that better, but better than you have to the other side. And those so, aha moments are pretty special. Can I put you in both shoes at the moment? Mm -hmm. When you're the barrister who has caused the judge to have that aha moment, that must be a, a wonderful feeling of confidence and achievement versus the barrister on the receiving end of all that. Um, have you been in both positions? Yes. Mm. And when you're on the receiving end, you fight back. Hopefully you have an answer that's compelling. Um, hopefully you have an answer. Otherwise it's a very big hole that you wish would um, swallow you up. Yes. But often it takes a little bit of time to reflect. And so long as you haven't finished your submissions, if there is a lunch break in the middle, you can come back and say, Your Honour, I'd like to take 
you back, if I may, before I continue with, with my submissions to a point that you raised. So a chance to regroup. Yes. And there is that opportunity to regroup. But sometimes it's very hard to fight the aha moment. If I think back to some of the cases over the years that I have trained on, there's been a theme through a few of them in particular. And I won't name names, but um, I can think of cases where the tribunal found in favour of the commissioner. And reading through the decision, it was fairly obvious that the taxpayer was going to have a hard time winning this particular one. So they appealed to the federal court and they lose again. So they appealed to the full federal court and they lose again. So they apply for special leave to appeal to the high court and the special leave is refused. And I've got two points or questions on this one. One is a point I want to make. I've always thought that that particular situation is akin to the Black Knight in the Monty Python series, for those who are familiar with that scene. And I'm sure right now across this recording, a few of you are smiling out there. If you remember, we have the Black Knight in the forest. Including me. (laughs) I remember that scene. He's got his sword drawn. At the bridge. At the bridge, in the dark forest, covered in in leaves. And he loses an arm. It's just a flesh wound and I can keep fighting. He loses another limb. It's just a scratch. He then loses both legs. You've now got this torso running around the the forest floor saying, I can keep fighting, I'm, I'm okay. I've always thought that each limb that is being cut off metaphorically, is each loss along the way. So when you lose in the tribunal, you've lost your your left arm, and by the time you are refused special leave by the High Court, you've lost all your limbs, and yet they still want to keep fighting. So what drives this? Is this the taxpayer saying, I want my day in court, and I'm right, and and I just want to keep fighting this? Or is the lawyer basically saying, yes, we can win this, and we think there's still a chance? What drives those sorts of appeals that we do see from time to time, which are are clearly not going to go in the taxpayer's favour? Look, it it varies a lot. Um, In some cases, it is possible to lose every step of the way, but then win in the High Court. And we have seen that happen. We have seen that happen. Um, A couple, or one in particular I can think of, is uh, Central Bayside Division of General Practice uh, that made it to the High Court. That was a charities case. Um, And I had some involvement in that case. And it was won in the High Court, but not before. Uh, So just losing every step of the way doesn't mean that you're going to lose in the one that really counts, which is always the last one. It is the last one. Um, But I do sometimes observe cases where I think, hmm, I wouldn't be pursuing this one. In those cases, the answer to the question should be, it's not the lawyers saying, keep going, we can fight this. The answer should be it's the taxpayer saying that I want to. Now, if I have a client where I think the case is definitely going to go down, then I will tell the client that. Uh, And that is what is certainly the job of counsel. But if if the client wants to keep going and has an arguable case... And has the money to pursue it. The money to pursue it, but also so that the barrister is not uh, in any way attempting to put an argument to the court that is spurious, ridiculous, could never get up. Because in that case, we're, uh, we as counsel would be wasting the court's time. And um, that also could um, be not within the realm of our first duty, which is always to the court. So we shouldn't be putting up spurious arguments or ridiculous arguments. If the client has an arguable case and wants to pursue it, 
notwithstanding our advice that they will probably lose, then we can pursue it and follow those instructions and should pursue it. Do you ever see taxpayers shopping around? And, and of course, you're aware that in the tax profession with accountants, if an accountant says to their client, no, the law doesn't permit you to claim this, it's a, a private expense or uh, it's got a, a capital nature about it or whatever, we do hear stories where the taxpayer goes to the accountant down the road who lets them claim it and, and they get away with it, seemingly. Um, do you ever see that situation where a barrister says, no, we don't think it's winnable, but they, they shop around for another barrister who gives them a, a more favourable answer? Absolutely. It happens with barristers just the same way that it happens with tax advisors. And there's not much that anyone can do about that situation except, I think, um, be true to what they think is the correct answer to the question. Uh, and there are also stories where the same client has gone to the barrister down the road, got the favourable advice, pursued litigation and lost and spent a great deal of money on it. Um, and they're not great stories to hear. Um, one of the things where litigation is involved, which I quite like, is that you actually do get the answer. Eventually, you get the answer. Um, one of the things I found in private practice, and I was in private practice for 10 years, is that I could give advice, which I thought was correct, that I truly believed was correct, but only in one instance did I ever get the answer. Through a ruling? In, in it was of... through the High Court. Okay. Mm. okay. I, I, through litigation? Through litigation. I didn't take it to the High Court, um, but the issue was taken to the High Court. Um, I'd actually moved on from the firm by that time, but it was taken to the High Court and it was successful in the High Court. Whereas just about every other decision or bit of advice that's given by a practitioner, um, as you point out, is not actually tested. The, the, major, the vast majority of it is not tested. Mm. Yeah. One should never give advice, though, thinking it will be all right, it's not going to be tested. Um, because one thing I've been observing as time has gone on that more and more actually is being tested and picked up by the Commissioner... I agree with with that. The many, the many, um, uh, particularly technological advancements in the commissioner's um, auditing and information gathering, it means that the commissioner is picking up a lot more than he used to. So always, yes, always expect the that you will get the answer and it will be tested, but recognise that it's often not. You've acted for taxpayers and taxpayers often struggle with the idea about where the onus of proof lies. Mm. This is not the criminal justice system where the prosecution must prove beyond all reasonable doubt that the crime had been committed or the offence had been committed. Um, the onus is always placed on the taxpayer because they are in the best position to know what happened or what was involved in the transaction. So the commissioner doesn't have to prove that he's right. The taxpayer has to prove the commissioner is wrong. So I'm interested in your observations on that. Yes, I'd even say it goes a little bit further than the taxpayer proving the commissioner wrong. The taxpayer has to prove what the correct amount of taxable income is. So that's a positive burden. It's actually not sufficient to prove that the commissioner is wrong or the commissioner miscalculated or the commissioner took into account something that shouldn't have been taken into account. The burden of proof means that once the commissioner issues an assessment, the taxpayer must prove what the assessment should have been correctly, and that's Delco's case. And if the taxpayer merely proves an error on the part of the commissioner, that will not be enough. So the burden of proof is truly um, a burden. It's a high one. It, and it's the greatest challenge that the taxpayer faces. 
the rationale for it is that the taxpayer knows their own income, knows their own tax affairs, so they should be able to prove what their income is. That's the rationale for it, whereas the commissioner doesn't know any of that, uh, and consequently the taxpayer has to have that onus. But what it means is that often it is the taxpayer in a case that has to put, in, put on most of the uh, evidence and most of the affidavit or witness statement evidence. The commissioner can rely on documentation often, but the taxpayer has to put on the affidavit evidence, the witness statements, have their witnesses cross-examined. We very rarely see these cases, but they have uh, appeared, mal conscious maladministration cases. So uh, basically where the taxpayer is alleging that the ATO, the commissioner or the representatives of the ATO have engaged in conscious maladministration, they have not uh, correctly applied the laws and therefore there is some uh, technical issue with the amended assessment or the private ruling or whatever that, the, the document that was issued or the position reached by the commissioner. Um, certainly in my experience, I have not seen successful cases in this arena. Um, often they try to argue the commissioner acted beyond his powers, but as we all know, the powers granted to the commissioner under the tax law are so broad hmm. that he rarely acts outside them, and he knows what he can and can't do anyway. So your experience with conscious maladministration cases? Well, there's yet to be a successful one for the taxpayer. They tend to arise... So that scoreboard's uh, looking pretty bleak for the it's taxpayer. It's looking very, very bleak for the taxpayer. There was one decision in favour of the taxpayer by a single federal court judge that was overturned on appeal. Otherwise, there's been no finding anywhere of conscious maladministration against the commissioner. The cases tend to arise in recovery proceedings where the commissioner has issued an assessment and then is seeking to recover on that assessment. Uh, now, in those circumstances... Um, the taxpayer normally does commence proceedings under Part 4C of the Tax Administration Act uh, in either the tribunal or the federal court to uh, try to have the assessment overturned. But in the meantime, the commissioner does have the power to recover the tax. Now, the commissioner administratively has certain um, things that he does in those circumstances. One of them is perhaps only seeking to recover 50% of the tax pending the outcome of the Part 4C proceedings. But taxpayers have... Um, commenced uh, proceedings in order to overturn the assessment. And the way to do that is to impugn the assessment and say that the assessment was wrongly issued. And in order to do that, they uh, often attempt to show that there was conscious maladministration in the issuing of that assessment. It is extraordinarily difficult to show because the commissioner, under the legislation, if he has information... Um, and that information indicates that there is a certain amount of assessable income, then the commissioner can issue the assessment regardless, it seems, from what the courts have said, of how he gathered that information. And I can think of two very high-profile examples of this. Do you remember mm. the bank employee from Liechtenstein? Yes. Who went to Germany, revealed information about a whole number of clients. Uh, that ended up being shared with revenue authorities around the world, ended up with the ATO, and that led to assessments here. Mm. And, of course, the Panama Papers... Hmm. where uh, the ATO, of course, is uh, investigating that at the moment and, and more than likely this will lead to some uh, criminal charges and potential convictions. Hmm. So even though arguably it's come from leaked information, it doesn't prevent the commissioner from being able to use that information. No, in fact, the commissioner, uh, if he has information, that um, he, the courts have said he's obliged to use it, to I use that to information. Add, to, he must use it. Yes, to, to issue an assessment. Um, 
And so conscious maladministration only comes about... One can start imagining situations where it might come about. A a tax officer issues an assessment to a neighbour with whom they have a, a, a fencing dispute. Might be one example of conscious maladministration. Consciously, that tax officer is badly administering the law. Um, that would impugn the assessment. Uh, but there certainly haven't been any examples of that. Um, the examples um, that the taxpayers have not succeeded on have been assessments which the courts have found were validly issued in order to assess the taxpayer to tax. You raised an interesting point in that discussion that taxpayers who may be challenging an assessment still could be subject to recovery proceedings by the commissioner. And again, I think this is an area that I see repeatedly coming through our cases that we report on. Either taxpayers don't seem to understand that or they don't appreciate the significance of that. And I can think of a case we're reporting on at the moment where the total tax being recovered, it was actually a financial hardship case, so they're seeking to be released from the tax debt. But uh, the tax in question was $7.68 million, of which the primary tax was about $1.2 million. The rest was general interest charge and penalties penalties and and Mm. debt interest. Mm. And these things can escalate so quickly. So where a taxpayer is disputing amount, I've always said to the practitioners, you you pay the amount, you fight about it later. If you win, it's refunded back to you. And if you lose... Well, you had to pay the tax anyway, but at least there's no further damage. Mm. But if you don't pay the amount in dispute, and this goes on for years, then you can end up with these significant GIC debts. Mm. That's right, and it's a risk. Which can absolutely dwarf the primary tax involved. It can indeed, and one hopes always that taxpayers in that situation actually have the money to pay the tax, and that, that's where it becomes challenging absolutely. if they don't. The circumstance, what you're describing, involves no penalties, of course, but... but Penalties at their worst can be up to 90%, 75% increased by 20% in subsequent years. So take penalties, take the primary tax, increase it by 90% and then apply interest to it over a number of years. It turns out to be a very, very big number. It's a very ouch number. It's a, an incredibly ouch number. And, and what can early on be um, a little bit of a benefit in terms of cash flow to a taxpayer to a taxpayer's business in year one if it turns out that 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 benefit has arisen through tax issues that are subsequently overturned, the cost can be devastating to that business 10 years on. And it's just a gut feel, but again, on the cases that I've been reporting on for over 20 years now, so I'm prepared to say how many years I've been trading. (laughs) Well, snap. Um, (laughs) I'm seeing more evidence of higher penalties being imposed, 50%, 75%, and less of the 25%. And it may be just the circumstances of those taxpayers that warranted the high penalty, but hmm. it just seems that the 75% is just happening a little more frequently. Yes, well, somewhat self-evidently, perhaps, um, when it comes to penalties, uh, the cases I'm involved in that go to court, it ends up being a judge who assesses the penalties rather than the commissioner. And judges sometimes do overturn them. I'm aware of a couple of cases where the court has found against the taxpayer but has removed all penalties. I can think of another recent decision where failure to include capital gain from a sale of a property, uh, it was a default assessment, 75% penalty. What also made matters worse was that the tax agent had received the old 264 notice and didn't respond to it. 
which are just on the record practitioners, if you get one of these, which are now known as 353 notices, don't ignore them, yeah, tip of the day. And as a result, the penalty was uplifted, and I think it was to 90%, I think. Hmm. And on appeal, they've kept the penalty but reduced it down to 60%, acknowledging that basically the agent was doing things seemingly without the knowledge of the taxpayer, and she was oblivious to this. Her husband seemed to be running the show with the agent. Hmm. So um, it's an example where there was a shortfall and a penalty was warranted, but they felt it was really the actions of the agent that made matters worse and that the taxpayer shouldn't be solely responsible for that. Hmm. Or more importantly, the actions of the agent shouldn't be fully imputed back onto the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. So this is a good segue into evidence and credibility of witnesses. It is key. When we talk about evidence before the court... I can think of dozens and dozens of cases I've reported on where they were missing loan agreements, they were missing logbooks, they were missing trustee resolutions, they're missing property purchase contracts, whatever is the, the relevant document needed to support their argument. And I've always been a big advocate for remove doubt. So if there is a situation where if the document is there and it removes the doubt and makes the problem go away because all you do is provide the commissioner with the necessary documentation or not having that documentation so now there is doubt and then we go and fight about it and end up in court um, we're never going to be able to get taxpayers to keep all their documents but it's a good start it is certainly a good start and highly recommended um, if you do find yourself in the situation where your client doesn't have the documents though um, it is far better when the witness is giving evidence to be upfront, honest and truthful. So forthright? Absolutely, 100%. In fact, a witness uh, who gives forthright evidence perhaps to their detriment is seen as a very credible witness and, and it can actually act almost in their favour. And that's treated more favourably by the court than someone who's evasive or unable to recollect details. Absolutely, um, unless they genuinely can't recollect details, and it's perfectly believable that somebody but, cannot recollect something that happened that ten years ago. Yes, it does. That's right. Um, so, the biggest rule about giving evidence in a court is tell the truth. And if you don't remember something, say you don't remember it, uh, and don't make things up. And if you don't have a document, then say you don't have a document and say to the best of your memory what you can remember about the words that were spoken. You've said to me previously that if you go to court and you're not telling the truth or you're outright lying, so there's a difference between um, not being completely forthright with the being truth. Being evasive, yes. So withholding information and actually telling an outright lie, but either are not good in this situation. Mm. You're asking for trouble if you go to court on that basis. And you said to me that the system is designed to extract the truth from people. Absolutely. If Why you, is that? Why and how does the system do that? If you if you intend to go to court and you intend to try to obfuscate, um, uh, if you intend to try to evade questions or just intend to mislead, you are asking for trouble. Um, we have an adversarial system and you are going to be asked questions by someone highly trained in asking questions about what you're trying not to tell the truth about. And you're going to be picked up. And whereas perhaps in casual conversation you might think, I can avoid this answer a little bit and give a clever answer and then I'll be clever and I won't actually answer the truth. Or I can bluff my way through this. I can bluff my way through it or just give a cute answer 
which answers the question but doesn't actually really answer it. Or be flippant or dismissive. You simply won't get away with it because there is a judge sitting up on that bench who wants to know the truth and is probing for the truth and will actually get quite annoyed that you're not being upfront and telling the truth. So you're not just getting pressure from the cross-examiner, you're getting pressure from the judge themselves. Judges will sometimes... As I'm talking. Judges will sometimes speak up. I've heard a judge, for example, say, you'll have to do better than that. Um... Judges vary. Some judges don't say much at all. Others do actually say quite a bit to witnesses. Uh, But don't think I can give a cute answer and be a little bit evasive and I'll be really smart and get away with it because you won't get away with it. It's a very, very serious business. There is a word that has commonly come up when I've asked accountants who have had the... um, the fortune, the misfortune, to have appeared as a witness. And I'm talking generally expert witness cases, or maybe they had a client who was um, going through a case. And it's not common, but accountants do occasionally appear as witnesses, and they appear in courtrooms. And the one word that they've all consistently used to describe their experience in that witness box was daunting. It is. That as experienced mm. as they were, as expert as they were, as much as they knew their subject material, they still found the process of being cross-examined in that environment daunting. It's scary. It's a scary environment. All of the attention is directed towards you. Everyone in the courtroom is looking towards you, including the judge. Um, And it is designed to be imposing. Uh, And it's designed... To extract the truth. To extract the truth. It's a very unreal environment. And before you even start speaking, you have to stand and either swear an oath or state an affirmation that you are going to tell the truth. And then... That's what you're expected to do. Uh, And you've got on one side of you, you look up and it's always up. You can see the judge. And a little bit to the other side and and centre, there's somebody standing there who, who, if you are in a courtroom, is robed in some pretty medieval gear asking you questions. We haven't talked about this. Briefly, can you explain why the robes and the wigs? And that's not in all cases, is it? At what point do you don them? No, in fact, wigs are wigs are quite rare uh, in Victoria now. They haven't been they haven't been in the federal court for many many years. They they've never been in the federal court in my time at the bar, and several years ago they were largely removed from the Supreme Court. You can still see them sometimes uh, in the county court. The rationale for uh, one of the basic rationales for for having the all of the regalia is that it depersonalizes the people who are in the courtroom. So they become cross-examiners or the counsel as opposed to Julianne? As opposed to a person. And certainly um, so far as the judges go as well, they are also depersonalised. Now, it's probably not so important in a commercial case, but in a criminal environment, um, whilst, as I say, the the Supreme Court doesn't have the wigs anymore, that was certainly the the original rationale for keeping all of the regalia. Um, It's very difficult to see so many features in a person when they've got a a wig on their head and and all you can see is their face. Do you still wear a gown? Still wear a gown, though. And actually, one of the things, one of the advantages that it does have is when one is in a courtroom, the people who talk are either the judge or the barristers who are robed. And there can be a lot of other people in the courtroom, often not so many in the audience, but there can be instructing solicitors and quite a few of them on each side. Um, There's also a number of court attendants um, and the only one of the court, only other worker in the courtroom who will be robed will be the judge's associate. Um, 
and a uniform perhaps by the court officer. Those who are wearing the special garb are the ones who do the talking. Uh, and that in a sense almost distinguishes them and it's quite clear to everyone, including the judge, who are the people to direct attention to. And who has authority. Who It's not only authority, I think it's also more focus that there can be a lot of movement in a court, there can be a lot of people in there, but there are these particular people in this particular guise. They're the main players in the particular courtroom. Mm. Now, that's that's my theory and philosophy on why it's actually quite helpful to still have that. So just closing off the discussion about evidence, there seem to be so many cases that are won and lost on evidence, and... I guess I'm asking you, is evidence the be-all and end-all? Does a case only ever turn on evidence or are there other factors? Because it seems that with a lack of evidence, it's difficult for taxpayers to prove their case. And this comes back to, of course, the onus. Hmm. Um, no, cases turn on law quite frequently, but you can't actually determine an issue of law before you have the evidence. And when you're in a courtroom, there is no hiding so far as evidence goes. You can't... Sometimes... sometimes um, I have observed in advices that might be written, the facts may not be altogether clear, but the advice is still being written. Um, The beauty, and I think perhaps the simplicity of what happens in a courtroom is that the facts have to be absolutely bettered down. And agreed on by everyone. Well, sometimes they're not agreed on and then there's a dispute over them, but, but whatever side you are on and acting for, you need to know the facts need to know the dates when everything happened and chronology is, is I'll say, monarch. Um, chronology is very, very important to know exactly what happened, when it happened. There is no hiding from not knowing the facts, uh, particularly where you bear the onus. So bring it back to practitioners. What would you give as three main points of advice if you're a tax practitioner, you don't work in the litigation space, Um, How can you keep things on a straight and narrow? Um, The first one I'd always say, which is, um, I think, an important philosophy for any professional. Um, And in order to hold yourself out as a professional, that is, has a certain status, and it's something of which you should be proud. I I think you need to be honest and upfront in all of your dealings. Um, answer things clearly and properly and as accurately as you can, including giving advice to clients even where it's not the advice that your client wants to hear. And ultimately, if you therefore build up a reputation as being somebody who does that, you will get trust throughout the entire profession and also one would expect and hope from clients and will get repeat custom and other clients coming to you because of that reputation. So play everything with a straight bat and say it as you see it, whilst appreciating that sometimes the news will be bad to clients. The other one is just um, a, a protection issue that I was taught as a very, very junior solicitor by a very senior partner of a major law firm, and that is keep detailed notes of every telephone conversation and conversation you have in which you um, provide advice or that you have on behalf of a client with somebody else. Always keep those notes. I've got to say, I think lawyers do this a lot better than accountants do. And if you're an accountant out there who's doing this well, then good on you. But 
I don't think in our training it is drummed into us nearly as much as it is for the legal profession. Yes, well, I've been. I was given the example when I started of a um, of this senior senior partner who always at the end of every conversation he had with a client or on behalf of a client would just spend three or four minutes dictating the substance of it, send it through to his secretary. Back then, <laughs> most people had them, which which. Um, perhaps makes this a bit more onerous, and then not see it again. And having that note on the file that his secretary had placed there upon um, typing out what was dictated actually saved him in, in a particular circumstance when the investigators came calling. Uh, and, and he said you could visibly see them relax when they saw my note on the file. Uh, so really, really important that it actually to go back and even if you possibly can dictate a conversation, actually reinforces in your memory the conversation you've just had. Um, you asked for three examples. The third, the third one that I would give is don't backdate documents ever. And this is something that I was also taught um, uh, when I first started in a law firm. Never, ever backdate a document. You can date a contract, for example, if, if it needs to have started at an earlier date, then you can say this contract is effective as at. We, we date it today, but in respect of 1 July 19 onwards. Yes, exactly. Um, but we but can't never, ever backdate a document. that it was actually created on the 1st of July 19 no. when we're sitting here in, in August. No, even though, um, and gosh, I, I appreciate this, that it can it can be difficult to hold the line on that. Uh, because you can find yourself in a situation where backdating that document would would really make a big difference to you, to your client. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that you can get into big trouble over if you start backdating documents. When you sign something and you're putting the date on it, put on the date that you're actually signing it. I would be lying to you if I sat here and said that I have never seen it or I've never heard of it. Because across the profession, I think every accountant would agree they've seen or heard of it this at some point. Of course. And it's mm. a reality that you know, I've heard responses like, oh, well, they're never going to find out. Mm. Or who's going to know? Or it suited the client that way. Or you know, we need the benefit of hindsight and we didn't have that at the time. Mm. Um, but whether it's a loan agreement or yeah, a classic one is the FBT logbook. Mm. There are mm. taxpayers who are silly enough to go out and buy a logbook from Officeworks, mm. which if they have not noticed there's a little date printed on it and they've purported to create logbook entries from, say, four years ago when the logbook itself was not actually generated and printed and made available at Officeworks until, say, the last six months. <laughs> and this has happened. And those dates are on yeah. there for a reason. Mm. So I have heard of cases where the ATO can carbon date the age of ink I've heard of a, a story where they looked at ink on a document and they did testing to the point of working out the pen that that ink came from was manufactured at a date that was after when the document was allegedly signed. Mm. Now, this mm. is pretty extreme, mm. and I think of CSI-type stories with this. Mm. But if the tax office wants to prove a particular point or they question the integrity of a document... Uh, it doesn't take much to go and look at the word properties. If anyone knows enough about Microsoft Word or any other word processing program, if you go into the, the properties of the document, it'll tell you when it was created. Hmm. Hmm. So there there can be many ways now, many, many ways that you can be picked up on it, um, many ways probably that we don't know about yet, but we'll find out about in due course. Now, 
some practitioners might be of the view that they've got a slim chance of getting caught. But conversely, if they are caught, what do they stand to lose? What's at risk here? Their reputation, um, their right to practice. Um, they can be found, if someone's found uh, not to be a fit and proper person, then that is the basis to remove their registration as a tax agent with the Tax Practitioners Board. Uh, they can be in breach of the Code of Conduct, uh, which can be another reason why they can have their registration terminated, suspended. Uh, so they can, they can lose their right to earn their living, uh, but they also can be significant reputational damage amongst one's peers. Uh, and that can, be, that can be pretty nasty. And also, if you're a member of a professional body, they have their own ethical codes that need to be followed. You can lose your membership of, of your professional body. Uh, and ultimately, also, um, you, can, you can lose a client over it, potentially. Or, um, worst case, you could end up in jail if what you've done is serious enough. Yes. And we've seen accountants who are imprisoned. Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, so, final question. When should accountants engage a legal practitioner? Again, I've heard of stories where accountants have tried to do it themselves or the client didn't want to pay for any legal advice at the early stages. And then it escalates. And by the time the solicitor is actually engaged and ultimately could lead on to a barrister being engaged if it goes off to court... Um, We've got big issues. It's escalated. The GIC is compounded. Uh, there may be statements made where they later recant or uh, provide a different statement and, and it's inconsistent with what they've previously said. So when should an accounting practitioner approach a legal practitioner? At what point in the process? I would say at the early stages because you <laughs> might have false economies by actually having bigger outlays later on. In light of the um, of the horror stories you've just given, yes, the obvious answer is as soon as possible. Look, I... Uh, um, but putting the horror stories aside, what I would say this, like with any profession and any professional, once you're outside your experience and expertise, seek help from elsewhere because you are exposing yourself to doing the wrong thing and then that can very negatively affect both you and your client later on. And eye claims as well could be... Uh, an outcome of this. That's right. So, and often you don't know what you don't know. Um, so if you're branching into an area that you don't know about and you don't have experience in, whether it's litigation, whether whether it's whether it's superannuation, if you haven't practiced in superannuation before, whether it's any area, writing an objection, writing an objection, even seek expertise, someone who's done it before. Um, now, I appreciate, and one of the things that's exciting for all of us as tax practitioners is that perhaps every day we're a little bit out of our comfort zone, but there is a limit and you've got to recognise that limit when you're going beyond, I'm just out of my comfort zone, to I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing and I'm not experienced in. And as soon as you're doing that, call on external help. Um, in the context that you were talking about, Robin, um, I think if anything is looking towards going to litigation, then you need to get help with that. One final question. Does tax still challenge you? Every single day. You too, Rowan? Absolutely. That's why we're still <laughs> in it. <laughs> Julianne, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, your insights have been really interesting and I'm sure for a lot of the practitioners who haven't seen the inside of these federal court and, and high court courtrooms. It's been um, uh, quite a journey. So thank you for your discussion this afternoon. 
Pleasure. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.